What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is Friday, May 28th at the time of recording, but in Australia, it is Saturday, May 29th, which also happens to be Olivia's birthday. <laughs> Woohoo! Happy birthday, friend. <laughs> Thank you. It feels good to turn 21 for the millionth time. <laughs> I'm glad that you can finally drink legally. Oh, well, it's 18 is a drinking age here, but... Oh, yeah, right. no, finally, finally. <laughs> well, when you ever, whenever you come to visit here, you'll be able to legally drink. <laughs> Best day of the year, May 29. Mm-hmm. I think so too. I apologize if I'm a bit, sound a bit congested. It's winter here and I think I've got a cold, so I sound a bit blocked up. Don't leave us a bad review about it. <laughs> I can't help it. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of updates to a lot of cases that we've talked about, so we're just going to get right into it. Um, Busy week. Yeah. Well, remember last week when we finished, well, two weeks ago when we finished recording was literally right when we finished, they found Alan White's (laughs) remains, like as soon as we were done recording. And I screamed. Literally minutes, minutes after. (laughs) (laughs) I literally screamed. I was like, we should get back on. But then we just never did. (laughs) So first update is that Alan White, we did an episode with him, one of the missing executives. If you remember, he was last seen after he went to the gym, went to the gas station, and he just disappeared, and his car was found a few miles away, I think in October, he went yeah. missing. So on Thursday, May 13th, Lance surveyors working for Paul Quinn College discovered a body around 12.45 p.m., and a detective, I guess they suspected it could have been his body because it wasn't very far away. Um, they contacted Alan's family and got more info about what he was wearing when he disappeared. So they were able to identify that it was him. Um, he'd been missing for seven months at that point. So even though that happened a couple weeks ago, there hasn't really been any other updates yet. Um, his family is offering a $10,000 reward for information. And Crime Stoppers is offering... A $5,000 reward. And um, in an interview, Alan's brother Tim said, We do want someone to come forward. Someone out there knows something. Maybe finding his body will be that extra push to get someone to come forward and speak out and bring whoever did this to justice. Alan was very loving, very giving. He would do anything for anybody. And that's what makes it kind of hard for me to fathom why somebody took his life. And then you put here that his obituary has the missing date as his date of death. Yeah, so I think when they first released his obituary, it actually had the date he was found as his death date in it, but they've since changed it to the date he went missing. So it says um, passed away on Thursday, October 22, 2020 in Dallas. So they've like, we, we had a discussion about this in the group and so I've seen it both ways. If someone has been missing, occasionally they'll use the missing date and occasionally they'll use the found date. Well, I remember with... Um... Delphi, that's why Libby yes. and Abby have, are different because one picked the death, the found missing date, date. Yeah. Me- missing date. Um, so I don't know if that has any, like I can't really think of any significance. It's probably just a personal preference for them as to why, because I'm assuming he's been dead the whole time. Yeah, um, I'm sure that's why. They probably assume that he went, the one he went missing is when he died because he it, it wasn't very far away, right? I forgot to write down the miles, but it wasn't only like a couple miles away. Yeah, like it was under five miles, I'm sure. Like I don't have the exact mileage, but it was very, very close. And I know people said that they should have searched that area at the time. Like people had suggested go and search this certain area because it's like a wooded 
area and things like that. Um, I found some photos of the area on Reddit and it's um, like I read also some comments they said that said it's a really dodgy area. It's a bit like LA Skid Row, which I've seen other people say it's no, it's not that bad. But it's, um, I don't know, and there's lots of speculation about why he wasn't found. They should have searched that area, whether or not they did, I'm not entirely sure. But why wasn't he found when he was really so close to his car? Um, and I know there's been lots of talk about actually what happened to him. And my theory now is that he took his own life or, yeah, I think it was probably a suicide. I was going to say maybe there was like a drug overdose or something and he was dumped. But for me, I think it was probably a suicide, which may also explain why he wasn't found if he was hidden, say, in some trees. You know, maybe, maybe this is all speculation, but maybe if he hanged himself, he wouldn't have been able to be seen by, you know, just normal searches. It's like so weird to me. Like, I know I've said it to you in like private when we're talking, but I just like the vibe does feel like a suicide to me too. But then I'm just like, why did he go to the gym before you commit suicide? And like, why did he get gas in his car before you commit suicide? It's just like, it seems just like such weird things to do before you're like, all right, well, now it's time. I guess, you know, maybe, like, I don't know, obviously all speculation again, because we really don't know, but maybe something just sent him off. Maybe he got a text from someone who threatened, because I know there's been rumours that he liked random hookups with other men, you know, and obviously I don't know if this is true, so don't come at me. This is just what I've read online, but that he, you know, would meet with random men for sex, I guess, basically. So maybe something, you know, along those lines and someone threatened to tell his partner or... You know, I don't know, I guess there's a million reasons that he could have been set off, but it's just strange. Like, and I I feel like there's no sense of urgency from the police. Um, I know the homicide detect, um, you know, division is investigating it, but there's no real sense of urgency in looking for someone. It seems if it was a murder, um, I feel it's probably my, my theory, I think is 60% suicide, maybe 40% some type of misadventure either he hooked up with someone and it went wrong or you know something like that but yeah very very little info I did find the photos so it's like a kind of a dead end street it says street ends no outlet it's just heaps of you know trees woods um there are some houses quite close by but I guess you know it's not like it's in the middle of nowhere where he was found it looks like it's quite a residential area yeah I also, just quickly, because I really wanted to get more information about this, and there's just been radio silence. So I spent hours the other day <laughs> trying to figure out the Dallas Police Report website just to see if I could see anything on there. So I did find the police report for the remains when they were found, but there's after all my searching, there's no information in there. It just says, unexplained death only remains at the location. It says un- And they haven't updated it. It says, unknown name um, was found at 12.47 p.m. You know, that's about the bulk of the information it really really has no other information and they haven't released anything else so yeah I don't know it'll be interesting to see what comes from this um, it sounds like his family believe he was murdered but I guess they also need to wait for an autopsy maybe if it wasn't an obvious cause of death and things like that yeah I feel like however like his body was found or could be telling like you said like did he hang himself like did he have like a gunshot wound to the head like was he strangled I guess that's how you always answer what happened It's interesting to, to me too that they identified him so quickly. Like I know they've said they identified him based on the clothes, but I'm assuming he wasn't probably recognisable, you know, as who he was. So it's interesting that they didn't wait for – maybe they had dental records, I guess, but for confirmed DNA and all that just to, before releasing that they'd found him. Yeah, I'm 
Mm. Guessing that maybe they, they didn't have the official like DNA test back, but it was safe to assume. Yeah. And then <sighs> the next update we have is the big mess of Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. There's been a lot going on with this case, and it's been very hectic to keep up with. And you're going to go over that one because I think that you follow it better than I do. <laughs> oh, it's so, it's just been like this week, especially like it's always, you know, been a little bit of news here and there about the Vallow case, but this week it's been every day, basically, there's been something new and big happening in the case. So like you get like whiplash because it's like one, <laughs> this one thing happens and this other thing happens and then they're like, never mind. And yeah. Lori's crazy. Like, <laughs> So I guess we start with Friday, May 21. Lori was declared indigent by the court, which basically means that she doesn't have enough money to pay for her attorney. Um, I looked it up and it says defendants are typically declared indigent near the beginning of court proceedings, so they may apply for a public defender paid for by the county government. So um, then it also says an indigent client may be required to refund the county for the defence unless the requirement would impose a manifest hardship on the indigent person. So I don't even know. I guess they, they were gearing up for the trial or whatever and she had no money, but her attorney, the PayPal lawyer, <laughs> Mark Means told the media that he would continue to represent her, which I find interesting because if she can't afford a lawyer, I guess he can offer to do it pro bono, but then you would think that a public defender would be um, like allocated to her, but maybe I guess if someone's willing to do it for free, they can do it that way. Yeah, he's probably just doing it for like the notoriety. Oh, absolutely. You would be silly as an, as an attorney to give up this case. Like this will be the case of his career. Yeah. Um, so that was Friday. <laughs> then on Tuesday, May 25, really, really, really big news. A grand jury in Idaho indicted Chad and Laurie on first degree murder charges in connection with the deaths of Laurie's children, Tylee Ryan and JG, JJ Vallow. But finally, Chad was also charged with first degree murder in relation to his ex-wife, Tammy, who died in her sleep a few weeks before Chad and Laurie were married. So um, at the time, I think we spoke about in the podcast that we did on them, that she died in her sleep and basically the family denied an autopsy. They didn't want one. So Mm -hmm. throughout this whole investigation, then when this all kind of came to light, they exhumed Tammy and did an autopsy, but we've never, ever been told how she died, um, you know, I've had theories about poisoning and things like that, but we've never ever been, not you know, the public has never been told how she died. And then I forgot to write here because I, like, had it and then I took it out and I meant to, like, go back and add a note about it because it was just confusing how all the articles worded it. Were both of them charged with conspiracy to commit yes. murder for all three of them? Yeah, so, okay. yeah. So I think that means that Laurie was in on Tammy's death, but Chad was the one who actually murdered her. Yeah, because it says that they were texting. I wrote yeah. that somewhere down there. The other thing we didn't put in, which we could have, is about the past lives and all that, but we probably don't need to go into that much detail. Just tell I'm like, tell the people. If you <laughs> guys like aren't caught up on this story, we did do like a two-part really big involved podcast on it, if you want to go back and listen to it. And also, we've been keeping the blog on this updated, so if you want to catch up on all the crazy things that happened with it, make sure to check out those. It's one that it's really, like, I think you need to start at the start before you start diving into it because there's just so much backstory to this. And to come in now, you'd be like, what is going on? Yeah. So, yeah, start at the start. Um, in relation to those indictments, they say the couple's religious beliefs were a factor in the murders and cite evidence that Laurie and Chad spoke in tax, text messages about Tammy being possessed by a spirit along with the fact that Chad changed Tammy's life insurance a month before she died and he increased the death benefit to the maximum. 
So Chad got charged with insurance fraud in relation to that and Laurie was charged with grand theft because she continued to use the children's social security benefits after they died. What a loser. Another, yeah, she's a loser. Anyway, another big thing that happened too is that for anyone who doesn't know, Laurie's other husband, Charles, was killed before Chad and Laurie got married. You know, you can go and read all about it. But this week, Chandler Police submitted an investigation into the death of Charles Vallow and they um, put a charge against Laurie for conspiracy to commit first-degree murder in relation to that case. So all the charges are starting to add up for her. So after all these charges came against Laurie and Chad, um, another update is that a clinical psychologist determined that Laurie was not competent to proceed you know, for the trial and restorative, restorative treatment was recommended according to the court documents. So basically her trial has now been put on hold because she's not mentally competent and cannot be, I guess, tried under these current you know, mental circumstances. Um, yeah. So I wasn't quite sure what would happen now, but apparently, basically, they she ha- has to go and get treatment, either medication or you know whatever else they're going to do, and then eventually she should hopefully be able to stand trial, just not currently. Yeah, um, as they recommend restorative treatment, like whatever that means. Yeah, I know. I'm glad that she has to have treatment. Um, you know, like they just don't wait for her to, because I'm sure she'd languish there forever if she could. But yeah, anyway. I guess. So I guess in Idaho, you can't be guilty Insane. by reason of insanity. <laughs> so basically, this is just like my understanding is that they'll just kind of keep giving her treatment until she's competent to stand trial, which is kind of crazy to think about. But I'd love to know best what case goes scenario. on. What goes on behind the closed doors? Like, you know, like while she's getting treatment, every like obviously she's clearly crazy based on the whole past. But I'd love to know why they've finally determined it now. Yeah, I think it's no shock that she's crazy, but I think people are just like, like I posted this on our Facebook page. You know, it was just instantly, like we said last week, like our Facebook page, people get like really wild on, it and it was just hundreds and hundreds of comments of being people just being like, "Fuck this!" Like this is and ridiculous. Her, like, <laughs> like she needs to be tried. Like burn her in hell. And I think it's obvious that she's crazy, but I think people are so riled up about it because it's like, look at all these people that she killed, and she's competent enough to like be sort of like a mastermind behind all of yeah. this. But she's also clearly fucking nuts, so. I think she was definitely the mastermind. Like she, Chad was her little puppet for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, I said she yeah. was like the, the Charles Manson of the group. Yeah. Where I don't think she actually really killed anyone, but she was so, puppeteering. It's pretty shitty that she can obviously, yeah, like you said, be with it enough to <clears throat> orchestrate all these murders. But then when it comes down to paying the price, she can be, you know. And I guess people are suspicious that she's like, you know, turning it on to get the insanity. Yeah, I think that's what I think T. Stuart Stark is doing as well. Like she, I feel like she <laughs> must be turning it on to some point just to be as crazy as she possibly can to delay or whatever. Yeah, she's definitely doing the most. But, <laughs> apparently the prosecution has objected to the findings of the mental evaluation and a future hearing will be scheduled on the issue. So hopefully they keep things moving along quickly and, you know, this just doesn't go on forever. Yeah. So the next big update for a case that a lot of people followed, we never did a podcast on it. We thought about it, but it was just like covered in so much depth already that we just didn't. Maybe we will one day, but is Molly Tibbetts and she 
was she went missing and was murdered in July 2018 in Iowa. Um, but the trial was this week, and there are some updates from that. It actually came to a conclusion today, so I'll just go over some updates from that because I know a lot of people followed this case. So over the course of the two-week trial, jurors, jurors heard that investigators identified Christian, who is – what's his full name? I didn't write it. So over the two-week trial, jurors heard that investigators identified Christian Rivera as the car that was circling her. And basically, they heard a bunch of evidence as to why Christian was the one who murdered her. So in an interview with police, Christian admitted to them that he ended up killing Molly because he made like an advance towards her when he saw her out jogging while he was driving. And he thought that she was hot. That's in quotes. So he pursued her. But then he claims to have blacked out and her body was in his trunk and he doesn't really remember what happened. And then he put her body in a cornfield. So that was like what he confessed to. And that's what they went over at the trial. So forensic experts also went over that they found smears of Molly's blood in his trunk, which lines up with that story. But the big twist of the whole thing that left a lot of people shocked was in what seemed like a Hail Mary kind of thing. Um, the defense had Christian testify, and he came up with a story that no one had ever heard even hint at before. So Christian said that he admitted that the car that was seen in the video was him, but that he wasn't the one to harm her. He said that the night that this happened, two armed men wearing all black with stocking caps covering their faces showed about his trailer that evening, and the men directed him to get into his car and drive. So while they were driving, they passed Molly several times while she was driving, and then the men directed him to stop. He said one of the men had a knife and got out of the car and walked down the road. The man was gone for about 10 minutes, and the second man was still in the car in the back seat, and he started getting nervous, and he started being like, oh, come on, Jack, like the other guy's name is Jack, apparently. So Christian said he didn't know the men's identities, but his lawyers have tried to raise suspicions about Molly's boyfriend, whose name is conveniently Dalton Jack. But police cleared him because he was out of town for work that day, so he had an alibi. He was like... Not even just, like, I think he was, like, very far away for work that day. So it's kind of crazy that they their Hail Mary was to come up with a masked man theory and kind of try to make it seem like it was the boyfriend. Yeah. So during closing arguments yesterday, the prosecutor, Scott Brown, he showed the jury a photo of Molly smiling and recounted the state's timeline of her final moments. He said she crossed paths with him and it ended her life she was attacked brutally by him she was stabbed repeatedly by him can you imagine what that was like for her five weeks her body lay in that cornfield and you know who knew about that one man one man knew and he's here his name is christian bahina rivera so repeatedly the prosecutor stressed that the evidence pointed to only christian and that his motive was anger at his negative at her negative reaction towards his sexual advances and noting that Molly's body was found partially unclothed and her shorts and underwear were some distance away. Today, it's nearly three years since her body was found. Um, he was found guilty by the jury for first-degree murder, and he'll be sentenced on July 15th. So clearly they didn't buy the masked man story, well, just like the rest of us didn't buy it. Mm. I think they couldn't, they couldn't have made up a worse... Less believable story. <laughs> like, his defense team did him so dirty with that one. But, I mean, really, what else? I guess there's not 
many ways that they could be like, yeah, that was his car there, but... He probably got the defense that he deserved, really, which is no real defense. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking stupid. During the trial, they um, released some photos of, I guess, the crime scene of where Molly was found, and it was really sad. Just, you know, she was totally unrecognizable as even a yeah. human to me. It was basically just her, like, people kind of had to point out where her arm was and her, you know, you could kind of make out generally, but such a sad end for her just to be laying there for weeks and weeks in the hot sun. And Yeah, you you sent me the pictures and I was like, I don't see anything. I just see cord. I saw someone had done like a little sketch of how, like, you know, so you could kind of say, oh, yeah, I can see her arm now because I can see what they've done in this sketch. But otherwise you wouldn't know. Like I said, I think I said it to Nikki. I said there's no wonder that some people are never found because if I was there, I would not even recognize that as human remains. Like I'm sure there was a skull mm-hmm. and things like that that we didn't see. But, you know, it, it definitely wasn't obvious that it was just a person lying there. No, I mean, like once you knew and were like looking at it, you could like kind of see her arm and like I guess some of like her clothing or like her shoes. But yeah, like you said, I, I would have walked right past that. Yeah, me too. Anyway, I'm glad that her family can hopefully start to get a sense of, you know, closure if that's what they're looking for and move on now that Hopefully he doesn't appeal and drag this out. Yeah, I I just can't get past the like masked men thing. Like, <laughs> like what would the purpose be of these guys just like picking out him, this random guy, going into his house at night and going through all this effort? Like it literally makes no sense. It's like every every bad defense story is always someone like always a story like that. Like remember Sherry Papini and she's like, I was kidnapped by two or I don't know if she said Hispanic or black or whatever, you know, people. Like it's just the most unbelievable story, which is what the same as this. That's all the updates. I'm sure as soon as we're done recording, there'll be another update. They'll probably release Alan's cause of death or something today. (laughs) Probably. Um, So today for this episode, we're going to be talking about some strange disappearances. Um, unsolved missing people cases where they're just something weird stood out about them whether it's like a weird egyptian tapestry or running into the woods in front of a group of people or 9-11 yeah it's just um, like i said when we were trying to come up with kind of a, a you know to talk what we were going to talk about today I was just saying, like, there's just some that really stick in my mind. Like, there's always, you know, everyone has their cases, but there's, like, these aren't high-profile or really high-profile missing person cases, so not everyone would know of them. But they've always stood out to us just because there's something unusual. Yeah, like, I might, even if you don't remember their name because you just haven't heard about it for so long, like, you're saying, you're just like, oh, what's that one with the, like, Egyptian tapestry that was stolen or, like, that Mm -hmm. TV guy? Like, you'll just kind of remember it. And I know, like, when I was looking... Like if you go to some of the missing person websites, like some of them literally have no information. If there's no information or it will say something like, this person was last seen May 15, never been heard from again. No other details are available, which is crazy to me because someone would have been the last person to see them. But I guess, you know, more effort is put into investigating some disappearances than others. And probably um, depends a lot on their family too. Yeah. And their, I guess their lifestyle and, you know, which is Mm -hmm. sad, but, you know, yeah. So anyway, these cases are ones that, that we're going to speak about where there's some very unique circumstances involved. Mm-hmm. The ones we're going to, the cases we're going to speak about today, there's the case of missing woman Jenna Van Gelderen, missing man Terence Woods, and another missing woman, or I guess, you know, she is missing, never been found, but she's been declared dead, Snaya Ann Phillip. 
Is that how you'd say it? Snare? Snare. Hmm. That's what Google, <laughs> Google pronunciation said. All right. So Jenna's case, Jenna Van Gelderen's case is one that I followed for a long time. Um, there doesn't seem to have been much kind of recent information, but at the time I always just found it so unusual because it was kind of, you know, bits of news here and there and just weird things were going on. Jenna Van Geldren was 25 years old when she vanished on August 19, 2017, according to a DeKalb County Police Department incident report. She was supposed to be house-sitting for her parents' Druid Hills section home of Atlanta, Georgia. A vet tech was scheduled to visit the home to administer meds to the family cat. The veterinary nurse came to give an injection to the family's elderly cat, but there was no answer. Jenna's brother, Will, was called to the home. According to the incident report, Will stated when he arrived Saturday morning, Jenna was not there, but the TV and lights were all on. Her car was later found. Although Jenna remained missing, the blue 2010 Mazda 6 sedan she drove was found in Fulton County in a parking lot just over two weeks later. DeKalb County Police Department Captain Anthony Ford told Oxygen searching for it. The driver's seat was pushed back, which may have meant a taller person may have been driving the car. A tapestry was also missing from the frame inside the home, according to Jenna's family. Jenna is on the autism spectrum. Family members say Jenna was diagnosed with high-functioning autism. They fear it could make her more vulnerable as her nature is trusting. Jenna was a 25-year-old woman. She disappeared from Atlanta, Georgia in August 2017. At the time of her disappearance, Jenna was house-sitting for her parents while they are on vacation. I love the Vanished podcast. I listen every week, and I did listen to the episode on this a few years ago, and I actually re-listened just to make sure I got all the information right. But I believe that her parents left for vacation on August 17. Jenna was the only daughter in her family. She has a brother, Will, and her parents are Leon Van Gelderen and Roseanne Glick. Jenna was minding the house, but she was also pet-sitting for the family's 21-year-old cat, Jessie. I didn't even know cats could live that long. I know, it's crazy. It's very old for a cat. I would have Um, never... If you asked me if a cat could be 21, I'd say no. I feel like that's very unusual, but I have heard of, you know, some cats and dogs even living that long, but very I think I had a cat that lived to, like, 18, and that cat was, like, really old. (laughs) Anyways. Anyway, so one thing to note about Jenna is that she was recently, you know, let me just start that again. One thing to note about Jenna is that she was on the autism spectrum. I've read some articles and interviews with her dad that say she was diagnosed fairly late in her life, like I believe maybe only a few years before she went oh, went missing, maybe even a year before. I think she was diagnosed in 2016 and hmm. she went missing in 2017. She was very high functioning and her father had said in an interview that Jenna is, quote, very gullible, susceptible, enticed very easily, and she doesn't perceive danger the same way the rest of us do. So that kind of comes into play throughout this case. Um, She originally attended Georgia Gwinnett College but dropped out after three years and transferred to Gwinnett Technical College where she earned a certificate in office admin uh, the year before, 2016. She'd been described in the media as a regimented person. Um, so from what I had read online and heard on the podcast, Jenna's parents spoke to her many times, um, each day that they were away and to check on her and the cat. And they said they noticed nothing unusual in the lead up to her disappearance. So she started house sitting around August 17 or at August 19, two days later, some articles, there's a kind of a weird timeline with this. Some, every article I've read says a different thing and the podcast says a different thing, but Some articles say it was morning, others say it was evening. A vet, veterinarian, turned up at the house to give the cat a shot. 
Nobody answered the knocks at the door. So the vet called Jenna's brother, Will, to let them into the house and they found a bit of a, you know, a scene of disarray. Jenna had left the lights and the TV on. The cat was unfed, but all the doors were locked. Her phones, her car and a suitcase were missing, but she'd left things behind like her makeup, her shoes and two phone chargers. The last contact Jenna had with anyone was when she texted a friend who lived in another state at 2am in the morning of August 19 to say she was going to lie down. Her friend has said since said that this didn't really sound like a message that Jenna would usually send to her. So that's unusual. Weird. Like, were they talking before that? And she was like, I'm going to go. Like, it's like a weird thing to text to begin yeah. with. Yeah. I wonder if it just came out of the blue or, you know, it sounds like, like it probably wasn't Jenna who sent it, but um, yeah. Know, for whatever I'd reason. I'd like to know, like, the conversation before that or if there was any or, I don't know, just weird. Um, so her phone last pinged near Fairburn, Georgia at 7.45 a.m. on the day of her disappearance, but her car was sighted by a license plate reader in the northwest Midtown area of Atlanta at the same time. I looked it up on Google Maps and it says the distance between Fairburn and her parents' home in Druid Hills would be around 24 miles or a 30-minute drive. Some other reports I say um, I have read say that Jenna made plans to meet with a friend on August 19 and that when she, the friend went to the home, Jenna wasn't there. So then this is where the kind of unusual part of Jenna's disappearance comes into play. Her brother Will noticed that a large, heavy Egyptian tapestry that hung in the family living room was missing. It had been removed from the frame and a corner of the glass was cut off and the frame was put back on the wall empty. So, you know, with most frames, you take it off via the back. So you undo Mm -hmm. the back and put whatever in there. So I think that was an option for this. But for some reason, the person, whoever took it, cut the glass, which is weird. Anyway, I don't even get and, how you would do that. Like, it's, and then putting it back on the wall, like this whole what? Like, why? Why bother? Like, how do you neatly like cut the glass versus just breaking it? Like, so the tapestry is just described as hand stitched and five feet by two feet in size. It was a family heirloom, part of a set of three complementary pieces purchased by uh, Jenna's grandfather, I think, in the nineteen forties. The family have said it was so big it would have taken at least two people to remove the frame from its spot. It was had little monetary value. I think they've looked it up since and they've said maybe it might be worth, you know, a few hundred dollars, but it w- did have sentimental value to the family. Really her ugly. Dad, yeah, it is. It's no, weird. No offense some, to them. <laughs> I'll put some photos on the um, website of it, but it's It literally nothing. just looks like hieroglyphics that you'd see yeah. in, like, in, in the mummy. There was um, Oxygen did a like a, a, a series on this case called Searching For, and her dad Leon spoke to them, and he said it's the strangest part of the case, and police said they had never seen anything like it. So I'm just puzzled by this. I can't figure out what the significance. Maybe whoever took it thought it was worth a lot of money, but then if you, even My if you guess. thought, and I guess you could roll it up. I was thinking, why wouldn't you just take the frame as well? But I guess five foot frame would be hard to transport. Why don't you damage the frame? Mm. Like, just break it, bust it out, then put the frame back. Oh, that's crazy. Um, so anyway, when I think they kind of thought still Jenna would turn up, but she didn't. So they Leon and Roseanne cut their trip short and they arrived on August 21. And when they thought when they arrived home, Roseanne has thought said she thought, we're going to see Jenna, she's going to be here. But she wasn't. Her car was found around two weeks after she disappeared on September 5, 2017. It was found on D4 Place in northwest Atlanta, which, as I looked it up, it's around seven miles from her parents' home. 
when you look up all the spots that, you know, her phone pinged and that the car had the license plate read, it seems like whoever was driving the car was all over the place. Um, it's all kind of all different directions. There's not really a straight line that they were traveling or whatever. They were all kind of all over the city. A member of the public contacted the police when she saw the car because she'd seen an appeal for Jenna's case on Facebook. I remember at the time looking it up on Google Maps and Google Street View, and it's just kind of like a industrial, or, you know, commercial area. It's like it's not really built up. There's not a lot there. It just kind of looks like a random place to dump a car. Um, it's unknown if Jenna was in her car with her phone or at neither location, but the police have said they are very confident the car and the phone were not in the same place. So when Jenna's car was found, it was out of gas and her suitcase and some of her uh, belongings were in the car, but both of the phones that she had have never been found. Leon told the Oxygen documentary that the car was covered in leaves and that other various debris and that the compartments were open with items thrown around the car. There was also evidence that another person other than Jenna had driven the car. I'm assuming they know this by, you know, how far the seat was back. And I've also read that there was a, um, the passenger seat was quite far back, which I don't know if that really means anything because I'm sure she had passengers in the car at some point, but that the parent, the family made a point that the seats looked like it wouldn't have been there for Jenna. I wonder if the, if the car was locked when they found it or because if it was sitting somewhere for like two weeks, someone could have broken into it too. Yeah, that's true. Um, the car was found near a recording studio that had CCTV and the footage has been reviewed, but if it contains anything, that's never been made public. Um, so there was a cell, fa- cell phone charger found in the car, but that did not match either of Jenna's phones. It's weird because I read um, a comment on Reddit that said basically the police gave the car back to her family straight away. They never forensically searched it until 10 months after it was found. So by then, I guess, you know, heaps of people have been in it and touched it and things like that. And her brother, Will, was the one who found the phone charger that wasn't hers. Um, So it sounds like they kind of bungled this investigation from almost the start. Police might have seen the phone charger, but maybe they just didn't know, like, that it didn't fit her phone and just assumed that it it was was her charger. Um, so I started to wonder why she had two phones. Um, and I think this goes back to kind of Jenna, maybe not making the best choices and being kind of vulnerable because of her autism. Um, in 2016, the year before she moved, uh, before her disappearance, she moved out of her parents' home and she refused to tell them where she was living. It sounds like they were quite controlling maybe to, um, like for a good reason that she wasn't able to make sensible decisions herself. So. Um, but she kind of rebelled against that and moved out and she got a second mobile phone, a private one, because her first one was on a family plan that the family could kind of keep track on, you know, keep track of who she was texting and calling and things like that. Um, her parents said that they didn't approve of her friends at the time of her disappearance. And they stated, quote, they took advantage of her. So after Jenna disappeared, the police tracked down where she'd been living. They found that she'd rented a room from a male friend. Her roommate told police he planned to throw her belongings out on the street as her rent wasn't paid for September. He refused to let the police search the apartment, but he has not been uh, named as a suspect in the case. And I can't find his name anywhere, so I'm not entirely sure who he is or whatever. But um, the parents went through her belongings and noted to the police that her bedding was missing. But the police accepted the landlord's answer that she slept on the floor without sheets or a pillow, which seems weird, especially if she had bedding. Where is this bedding? This is the point when I was reading it and I was just like, the police really did not give a fuck during this case. 
No. Um, so Jenna also had a boyfriend at the time. She disappeared. Again, I couldn't find his name anywhere. So if anyone knows it, send me a message so I can <laughs> do some online research. Sleuthing. <laughs> he was questioned by police and he said that Jenna came to his house on August 18, so the day before she went missing, and he broke up with her. He also told police that Jenna was a sex worker and a drug addict, a claim that her family have strongly denied. There's been some weird mix-ups in this case, and there were some articles published um, that attributed the sex work and the drug addict information to her brother, Will, but this isn't true. The claims were made by her ex-boyfriend. In a fairly large stuff-up, the police found a woman advertising sex on Backpage, and that woman's name was Jenna. So they told the family they had found their Jenna. But it turns out it wasn't. It was just another woman with the same name, same first name, not even the same full first, you know, full Maybe name. Maybe this is when I was like, they really don't give a fuck. <laughs> um, so the police, I know in the Vanish podcast, they speak a lot about how the police basically didn't want to do anything because Jenna's family had access to her records. But the police have said that basically it's not legal. They didn't legally, which I don't, I can't see how that's possible you know, illegal if they are the ones who own the phone plans and all that type of stuff. So Will, I know, was able to access Jenna's social media accounts. He found Google chat records that indicated that Jenna had been speaking with an unknown unknown person right before she disappeared. Whoever it was was pressuring Jenna to leave her family's home and return to her apartment. The family and the police have not been able to determine who she was actually messaging, though, which is weird. It's like the police definitely could figure out who it is. Yeah, if they wanted like, to. Yeah. So because she was on their mobile phone plan, um, they were able to clone her phone and they got into her, This is her family, by the way, not the police. They were able to get into her email and Facebook. They gave Google location information to the police, but the police refused to take it, citing legal concerns. The parents asked the police about a subpoena for the phone records so that they could, you know, get it in their legal right way. Um, but they said that AT&T had no record of the number. And I've read an interview with her father and he's like, why are you going to AT&T? I told you it was a T-Mobile account. <laughs> so okay. apparently the, de- the detective have said that he did an online search and saw that at one point it was an AT&T account. But even though the family is saying, no, it's T-Mobile, they're just like so, so... He definitely didn't Google anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On the Charlie Project, I found some information about Jenna's possible state of mind at the time of her disappearance. About six months before, she lost the only full-time job she ever had, and she was charged with misdemeanor theft after she stole $3,000 from the pet store where she worked. When the family later accessed Jenna's records, they discovered that she had been making payments to someone through Western Union since 2015, but the transfers stopped in the months leading up to her disappearance. After they found this out, her family feared that she may have been involved in some criminal activity and was not even aware that she was doing it. I've read some, um, you know, articles and things that say basically because she didn't, she was very vulnerable and naive that maybe she was, you know, embezzling money or something like that. And yeah, she Nigerian just prince. <laughs> she just wasn't even aware of it, which is weird. Yeah. So um, as of May 2021, Jenna is still missing. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, I don't know, I still can't figure out what role the tapestry plays. Maybe she was only tiny. I think she was under five foot tall. So maybe it's not unreasonable to think that they use the tapestry to maybe roll her up in and transport her somewhere if she died. But why just not use something much more accessible like a blanket or whatever? My only thought would be maybe she thought the tapestry was 
worth money yeah. and maybe she's the one who took it and that's why she was like careful about it because maybe she was like oh i don't want to like damage my house or like like you know she had some sort of care there and like didn't want to make more work for her parents or anything like that maybe someone was blackmailing her and she thought that it was valuable and she could sell it and yeah so she didn't want to make a mess maybe tried to just take it out and kind of hope maybe if the frame was up there no one would notice or yeah yeah. I don't know, because I feel like if it was just, like, a random person or whoever was, like, doing this, they would not be so careful with the frame or, like, put it back on the wall. Like, why couldn't you, yeah, why wouldn't you just smash the glass and get it out easily that way? Like, why go to the yeah. trouble of cutting and why, it? And it's just, why wouldn't you take the other two? Yeah. So I feel so, like that's my yeah. only thought, is that it had to have been her. Yeah. maybe Unless maybe she told someone that it was valuable and they came and got it, but... Yeah. Um, so the theories, basically the main theories I've read online is that maybe she ran away to try and get away from her controlling family, but I don't think, I feel like she wouldn't be able to stay hidden for this long. Um, no. So I, I've, I'm, you know, I'm happy to kind of discount that theory. And the other one is that maybe someone was taking advantage of her because she was vulnerable, could be the roommate, the ex-boyfriend. Um, I don't know if the rumors of sex work and drug addiction are true. From the comments I've read, apparently there was rumors of that, you know, people knew those rumors, so maybe that was somewhat true. Maybe she, you know, met someone on Backpage or, you know, whatever the, whatever site, if she was doing it, she was using that kind of took advantage of her. I wouldn't be surprised um, if it was true for some reason. Even, like, when I was reading the notes before you had even mentioned it in the notes, I was like, oh, I feel like she's got suckered into like doing drugs or like escorting. Yeah. Like she didn't really, not that she didn't know she was like doing drugs, but she didn't knowingly like get into escorting or something. Just like, you know, shitty people taking advantage of her and being like, oh, you want to make money? Like, she would be one person I think who could be easily trafficked. trafficked. Like, she, yeah, like yeah. she could be easily coerced, I think from what her mm -hmm. family have said, to kind of go along with something and that she could have got into a bad situation that way. Yeah, I think so. Um, the other thing too I read is that when her phone pinged in Fairburn, apparently the only thing in Fairburn is a massive landfill, um, mm. which so maybe the phones were disposed of and maybe Jenna was disposed of in this landfill, landfill in Fairburn. Yeah. Um, which I think would be a very plausible explanation. I feel like this could be could have been easily solved or at least mostly solved if the police had like, done anything gave yeah. literally like one fuck about it yeah like her family did so much and basically handed them all information on a silver platter like some police would probably be dying for all that information just be like handed okay. right over to them like they could 100 percent find out who she was talking to online like they've done that for other cases yeah you like, can figure know, out who people are on the dark web. Like you can't figure <laughs> out someone in, in Google Hangouts. Um, so as of you know May 2021, she's still missing. Um, I did find a comment from someone on Reddit who knew her, so I'll read it out. Um, it kind of gives you an idea more about the situation at the time. And they said, "Hi all. I actually knew Jenna personally for about a year back in 2014 to 15." I wasn't very close with her, but after spending 40 to 50 hours every week with her, you get a level of closeness. She was a cashier at my place of employment. A lot of the write-up regarding her mental development was true. She was very procedural and needed a baseline for how to do things. She was also gullible, but not in a severe way. She could definitely tell when you were kidding. She was so friendly and overly helpful as well. This last characteristic is, I think, where she may have had trouble. 
one of our male co-workers would take advantage of her generosity from getting rides from her, borrowing money and using her as a friends with benefits. So he, she was his mistress at the time. While I don't know how much or what kind of drugs she did, I, knowing Jenna as I did, I would be shocked to find out if she did anything past weed, but she was hanging out with questionable people and was easily swayed to do things. After I left my job, I think I have heard through the grapevine that she was prostituting a little bit, but I can't be sure if that was planted from following the case so slowly. She was a good girl. She had a huge heart and really tried her best. She had a few mental limitations with being on the spectrum and needed a lot more guidance, but she was good. She loved that cat. It has since passed since her disappearance. When I met her, she was still living at home and she would talk about the cat all the time. She spoke about her family too. From what she said, they were always loving and supportive, getting her help and encouraging her studies. She did feel overprotected at times and out of control, so who knows? I dream about her sometimes, finding her walking the streets of New York and hugging her with relief and telling her how many people are looking at you, looking for her. She was the type of person to text you on your birthday even if you had stopped talking or to randomly ask how your pets are doing. From the moment I heard the news, I have never wanted to believe it and I've started fearing the worst. So Jenna was last seen possibly wearing a green t-shirt with San Antonio on the front, a black tank top and black yoga pants. She's four foot 11 and weighs approximately 140 pounds. Um, Her parents are still trying to search for her. And I found a comment that says pretty sad. The parents live in my area and post on next door all the time, trying to keep the hope and search alive. So that's very strange. Yeah. it, It must be frustrating for them because it seems like there's so much information and, you know, things to investigate, and it just seems like the police have really dropped the ball. I don't know. I feel like I, like I know it's been on shows and stuff, but it's like they got to get the masses upset and mad at the police department. Crazy. Yeah. What do you think happened? I suspect she's deceased. Um, I yeah. don't know. Could have been an overdose. I think she probably got in over her head in you know, for whatever reason. I suspect that the missing bedding may have something to do with it as well, possibly, you know, used again to dispose of her. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was a boyfriend or the roommate. It was probably, I don't think it was a random attack. It was definitely someone she knew, I would think. Yeah, I think just someone took advantage of her. Yeah, and I think she either was like got in Multiple people and... said that she was hanging out with, like, shitty people. Mm. It seems like she wasn't running with a good crowd, so I, I don't I don't know what happened to her. If it was a you know maybe an accidental overdose, I think it was probably more a murder for for whatever reason. Yeah. So then the next one we're going to talk about is Terrence Woods Jr. and he disappeared in the middle of the Idaho woods on October fifth, twenty eighteen, and he was a production assistant. There's an intense search happening in Idaho tonight for a man from Maryland who disappeared there last week. His name is Terrence Woods. Terrence Woods was reported missing around 5.30 the evening of October 5th. Terrence Woods was a promising student here at the University of Maryland's Philip Merrill College of Journalism. A 2013 graduate, Woods was in his element when he disappeared last Friday. The Idaho County Sheriff says Woods was filming a documentary in the Oro Grande area with London production company Raw TV and was separated from his film crew when he went missing. 
Woods was working on a film shoot near Penman Mine. The rugged area is about 250 miles north of Boise. Friends forwarded this post from Woods' private Instagram account the day he disappeared. Idaho County sheriffs say Woods was acting strange, left the rest of his crew, and went over a steep drop. He would not stop, he would not return, and he just kept going, and they lost him at the... There's a road down below where he dropped almost straight down. Multiple agencies have been scouring Idaho County, Idaho's largest and most rugged county. Only days before he disappeared, Terrence Woods texted his family. He said he was leaving his trip to Idaho early. He has never once, never once cut any of his trips short. One member of the crew told police that he saw Woods drop his two-way radio and run down a steep hill. His parents have a theory. He's scared. Someone was bullying him. He was fearful. There was something going wrong, and he felt he couldn't deal with it, and he wanted to leave. Um, He was working with Raw TV at the time on a show for the Discovery Channel. Um, The show's Gold Rush, Dave Turns Lost Mine. So the show followed Dave Turns' journey through disused mines throughout the western USA. At the time of the disappearance, they had been filming near the Penman Mine, which is near the ghost town of Ora Grande. Terrence had worked extensively in television. He was from Maryland, but lived in the UK for five years. He worked on some high-profile British shows, including ITV's The Voice UK and BBC One Saving African Elephants. He traveled the world and seemed to be living the life. Um, A producer who used to work with him, Rochelle Newman, said, I met Terrence at an event which was part of the TV diversity scheme we were both on. He was always bubbly, passionate about his work and was on his way to a long, successful career in TV. So right before he went missing, Terrence posted a photo to his private Instagram and showed a forest of fir trees with a river, and he captioned it, Idaho. So this is where things start to get weird. There's not a lot that happens with this case, but what does happen is weird. So... (laughs) Terrence had been meant to work as part of a crew of 12 people until mid-November, but he texted parents a few days before he disappeared and said that he would be home October 10th, so like a month early. Right before he disappeared, he told two of his colleagues that he needed to use the bathroom. A few moments later, the associate producer, Simon G., noticed that Terrence had dropped his radio on the floor. The next thing he saw was Terrence running down a steep cliff that led to the forest where he disappeared into the trees. Many people who were at the scene tried to go down the cliff after him, but the terrain there is really rough and unpredictable. They returned with their clothes torn and covered in blood. Simon would later tell Terrence's father that his son was running faster than he'd ever seen anyone run before. Some searchers thought he may have jumped or fallen off of the cliff, but then they saw him at the bottom of the cliff running. I tried to find a photo of this cliff and I couldn't find it, but it sounds, yeah, crazy. Like It sounds like a very manic, manic break almost. Um, so there's varying reports as to the time Terrence disappeared. Some articles say it was around 5.30 and others say 6.41. So maybe they reported it at 5.30 and then the police showed up an hour later. But it was some time around then, the evening. So according to an update on the sheriff's Facebook page, they said, Due to the late hour of the report, the search for Terrence did not begin until the following day. So search teams made up of dogs, ground searchers on foot in all-terrain vehicles, along with helicopter teams that could detect body heat, were sent out the following day. He didn't stop by any of the nearby houses to call for help, the sheriff said, and he said it's 
rough country and there are mine shafts up there. All kinds of things could have happened, but we searched for him. Sounds a little defensive. <laughs> um, so the weather for a few days around the time that he went missing, the lows were around 37 degrees Fahrenheit, 3 degrees Celsius, and the highs were around 55 degrees Fahrenheit and 13 degrees Celsius. So it was pretty cold if someone was outside during that time. They'd probably get hypothermia. And you could probably survive that. a night maybe and then not much more after that. Yeah, especially if it's like in the 30s. Yeah. So the search was called off after six days without finding him. And Terrence's family have said they're skeptical about the version of events told by the film crew. His father said, you say my 97-pound son ran down the cliff without tripping, falling, or hurting himself. You don't have a trace of his blood or piece of his clothing. And he ran like a hare and ran so fast nobody could catch him. There's no way that this dude is 97 pounds, first of all. I know. he. Yeah, unless he's very short, which he could be. Let me look it up while you're talking. Well, I saw, because I looked it up a little, and I saw on Na- Namus, he's listed as 150 pounds, so I don't know if... Yeah, he is on the Charlie Project, so he's, and he's 5'9". That's so. my height, so... No, I'm not 5'9". 5'9 five five nine nine and 150 pounds, so I don't know where the 97 pounds... Maybe maybe the dad's kind of exaggerating, but then, I don't know, it sounds weird. Why just not say 100 pounds? Well, this might come into play with my thoughts later. Maybe the family <laughs> don't know him as well as they thought they did. <laughs> Anyways. During the investigation, more strange things came out as people started questioning the treatment of employees by the company that Terrence was working for, which was Raw TV. So Vice.com did an article about this, and this information comes from them. The original Idaho County Sheriff's Office report seen by Vice says that Terrence was, quote, having a really hard time emotionally and had a mental breakdown earlier today. When the 911 call was made, the caller, who was not part of the Raw TV crew, alleged that Terrence had been dealing with mental health issues throughout the shoot. However, when pushed to confirm these statements by Terrence's family in the weeks following his disappearance, they were retracted. When Fox 5 podcast Missing Pieces attempted to contact people who were present on the night he went missing, they were only able to speak to one of the locals. I don't think that's really um, strange because I'm sure that those people are trying to preserve their jobs as well. So maybe they'd been told to not speak to the media and things like that. Yeah. And like as much as as much as I'm interested in crime and stuff, it's like. You never really want to be part of an investigation like that. Like, especially like you said, when your job's involved, like it's scary. Like you don't want to lose your job. Yeah. Terrence's family have spoken to the media and have said they believe that his behavior was triggered by how he was treated while shooting the documentary. His mother said he was very responsible. He wouldn't run away without good reason unless he was scared. They believe that Terrence, who was the only black crew member on the shoot in Idaho, felt intimidated or was mistreated by his colleagues. They say that he wanted to return to his home in Maryland, but Raw TV denies hiding any details surrounding Terrence's disappearance. A spokesperson for them told Vice, The police have closely examined the case, including Terrence's correspondence with us and others, and found nothing to support the allegations you've put to us. The Raw TV also denies that Terrence was subject to any mistreatment or intimidation by the crew. Almost two weeks after Terrence was reported missing, Raw TV released a statement regarding his disappearance. The statement read, We can confirm that Terrence Woods, a member of one of our production teams, was missing on Friday, October 5th in Oregon Day, New Pierce National Forest, Idaho. 
All inquiries regarding the status of the search should be directed to the Idaho County Sheriff's Office. So at this point, Terrence's family have said that Raw TV was not active in the search to find him, and they allege that the production company has kept its contact with them and others who want answers about Terrence to a minimum. Terrence's friend and former colleague, Gia Tabasco, told Vice, It's baffling. I just don't understand. I don't know why it happened. Is it because he's a junior member of the staff? Is it because he's black? Um, some former employees also came forward after his disappearance to talk about the toxic workplace at Raw TV. An ex-Raw TV employee tells Vice that there is a laddie? Yeah, laddie. Never heard that. Do you know, do you know what lad, a lad is? Oh, like boys? Yeah, like a, um, kind of like a boys club, like a, uh, yeah. um, it's no, probably a bit, you know, make derogatory comments to women and, you know, things like that. The, the good old boys. Yeah, the good, yeah, good old boys club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so an ex-Raw TV employee tells Vice that there is a laddie culture at the company. There was a toxic undercurrent, which made me feel very uncomfortable, they said. There were conversations where they would make disparaging comments about people they were looking to hire. It made me feel quite uncomfortable. In a statement provided to Vice, Raw TV said, Terrence was a popular figure at Raw. He was a well-liked and valued member of the production team, and his disappearance deeply affected us all. Terrence was missing in a remote, densely wooded mountainous area in Idaho that was particularly challenging to search. From the outset, our location team was actively involved in the search for Terrence, and we put a great deal of effort and resource into trying to locate him, which included flying his mother and father along with two of Raw's executives to Idaho to help with the investigations being carried out by the sheriff's office. So as of right now, May 2021, Terrence is still missing. His friends have shared their memories of him. His former colleague, Gia, who we just mentioned before, remembers his dedication to getting a good night's sleep. She said he was so responsible. We used to go to the pub and everyone would stay until at least 9 p.m., but he would leave around 7. And I used to laugh at him and be like, why are you leaving now, she says. He's really to himself and selected of who he hung out around with. If he likes you, he'd chill with you the whole day. This family also spoke to Vice about the status of the case. They said, we kept getting conflicting information. One minute, the police department are saying the case is closed, and the next, they're saying it's still active. I haven't heard anything from them in over a year now. The Idaho Sheriff County's office issued this statement to Vice about the case. They said, Terrence Woods is still missing and the case is still open but not active. We follow up on any new information of which there has been very little, but do not have anyone actively searching for him. There's no specific amount of time a missing person case remains active, remains open as long as the person is missing, but is closed regarding man hours spent searching when we have done all we can do. Terrence Sr., his father, says that each day since Terrence's disappearance has been just as hard as the first. He said, I don't want to watch no movies with someone running through the woods because I think of my son. If I close my eyes, I see my son crying and yelling. Some nights I hear my son saying, Dad, Dad. I walk around the house and look at his room. Hmm, that was sad. His, he keeps photos of Terrence on his dresser and a painting he did hangs above the closet. The Dodge Charger Hemi he bought for his son sits unused in the driveway. Every so often, Terrence Sr. runs the engine so that the battery won't run down before his son, he hopes, returns. Sad. Like, I feel like his family are at a loss, but I also feel like, you know, there's, there seems to have been a bit more done in this case than there was in the Jenna case. Yeah. I, I wonder how close he was to his family. I feel mm, like maybe because it says he traveled a lot and, and he, lived you know, he was in the, in the UK. Yeah. 
So I feel like obviously, like my main thought is, I feel like he was. There's different theories, obviously. I should say that first. So a lot of people think either he had a mental break and just like went loose and then died from like you know falling into a mine or exposure, or that the crew members are covering something up. Or the two like main theories. Yeah. Um. I feel like it was probably some sort of mental break or he was like frustrated with something and just like wanted to like get away like maybe something annoyed him at work and maybe he had an accident got lost that type of thing but i think that i feel like in any case where mental health well a lot of them where mental health is like kind of brought up the family's always like no 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 he was perfectly happy like he was never had issues but it's pretty common for people who have depression or anxiety or mental mental health issues to sometimes not want to tell their parents because you don't want your parents to worry about you. And maybe not everyone's close with their parents. So especially like he lived overseas for five years. He was always traveling. He was working a lot. I feel like maybe they didn't know those more intimate details of his life. The other thing too is I think that he was around, you know, the prime age for schizophrenia to kind of come on. Um, like mm-hmm. I had a look and it says that it usually starts mid to late 20s, which is him. So I'm not saying he was schizophrenic, but if there was something like that going on, he would be at a, you know, in the prime category for it to start. Yeah. Or even just like if he was taking um, medication or anything like that, like if it's medication, I'm sure if police really like wanted to get into investigating and they could find all this out, if he had recently started a medication or maybe he was self-medicating or anything like that. Like, I used to take anti-anxiety medication. I don't anymore. But I know when you first start anti-anxiety medication, like, it could really fuck you up. Like, it can yeah. fuck with your head. It gives you really bad brain fog. But even just, like, it's only on my mind because, like, this happened to me today. I'm PMSing, so I feel really rage, rageful inside. <laughs> but even just today at work, just, like, a bunch of little things built up and were just, like, annoying me. And I was like, I just fucking, like, need to go outside and, like, get away from my <laughs> office for a minute. It's like maybe he just had a moment of frustration where he was like, oh, like, I just need to get away from this. And I don't I wouldn't be running away, but maybe just had to go off into the woods. And like they were saying, it's rough terrain. Maybe he just couldn't find his way back or fell into a mine or fell off a cliff. But I don't I don't think raw TV or whatever the company, I don't think they're being very overly nice about it to the family. But I also don't really think they're hiding anything. And they're probably just kind of like sick of it i do think that it could probably be a bit of a combination of him having a mental break but also of the companies covering things up because if there was this kind of dark you know culture going on within their business they obviously don't want that to be made public so i i i I wouldn't doubt that there was maybe something going on maybe some workplace bullying or you know whatever discrimination going on against him maybe that just pushed him over the edge but i do i don't think in terms of what actually happened in terms of him dying they're covering up i think that he i yeah. also he probably died in the, from exposure or from an accident while running yeah but that is another mystery weird one books. all right so the final one we're going to speak about today is one that i've been down the rabbit hole many many times over the years um, and i'm glad we get a chance to kind of cover it here but I just find it fascinating because there are actually quite a few possibilities that are all plausible about what happened to this person. So it's the case of Snea Ann Phillip. She was a 31-year-old physician who was living in Lower Manhattan at the time of her disappearance, which was 2001. Everywhere you looked, they stared back. 
painful reminders of the human toll taken by the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center. Following September 11th, New York City was blanketed with homemade posters of missing loved ones. Joining the thousands of distraught family and friends canvassing the city was Ron Lieberman. His wife, a 31-year-old physician of Indian descent named Sneha Phillip, was last seen in the vicinity of the World Trade Center. But Sneha's story is drastically different from the other hundreds of people still listed as missing and presumed dead. In fact, Sneha Phillip disappeared on September 10th, 14 hours before the Twin Towers' catastrophic collapse. While she may have been caught in the World Trade Center disaster, Sneha may have also succumbed to foul play. Her fate remains a mystery. So Sneha was married to another doctor, Ron Lieberman. She married him in 2000, which was the year before she went missing, at a small ceremony held in Dutchess County. They combined elements of their cultures. He gave her a minu, which is a traditional ma Malali, I think I'm, I'm saying that right, Malali Christian wedding pendant shaped like a gold teardrop with a diamond in it. They moved to a larger apartment in Battery Park City shortly after they got married. So the day before she disappeared was Monday, September 10, 2001. So you know what happened around this time, but we're at September 10 now. Ron left their home at around 11 to go to work as an ER intern. Snea kissed him goodbye and he left her playing with their kittens named Figa and Carly. She cleaned their apartment as she was planning to hold a dinner party on the Wednesday, which was two days after this. So I found a really good blog on this case called The True Crime Files, and it has a lot of kind of little details, which is interesting. Um, it says that during the day, she'd also repotted some purple and white orchids that had finally arrived from Hawaii, leaving the plants in the bathtub so any excess water could drain out before finding them a permanent home. It's just it's like it's a weird little... No, tidbit, interesting. Um, so Snea sent her mother an instant message at around 2 p.m. and the two started chatting online. I found a quote. It says, The two-hour online conversation covered a wide range of topics, including Snea and Ron's fun time at the bar the previous Saturday where Ron had played the guitar and jammed with co-workers, and also details of Snea's upcoming plans for the week. During this chat, uh, Snea also told her mother that she planned to visit the Windows on the World restaurant, which was on the top of the nearby World Trade Center, um, where her friend was going to be married the next spring. So Snea logged off from the chat at around 4 p.m. and she left the house to run some errands. She dropped off her dry cleaning and was seen on CCTV at Century 21. So this, they've released images of her there, so you can, I'll put them on the blog so you can see. Snea used a credit card to pay for lingerie, a dress, pantyhose, and linens. Then she moved to the shoe section and she bought three pairs of shoes. A cashier at the department store thought she saw Snea shopping with a young Indian woman, but this person never came forward and she hasn't been found on any of the surveillance footage. The CCTV footage of Snea at the store is the last confirmed sighting of her. Ron got home from work around midnight and she was not home. There are some reports online that say the couple had been having some marital issues. Um, there's a lot of info on her Wikipedia. Um, this is from there. It says, he believed she had stayed out late or all night as she'd been doing and resolved to remind her the next time he saw her to call him under those circumstances. So Ron went to bed pretty soon after he got home because he had another shift at work the next day. After Snea went missing and police looked into phone records, they discovered that at 4am, Ron received a phone call on his cell phone and he checked his voicemail, although he claims he doesn't remember doing so. It was a phone call from 
a random Sorry. number. I like. I well, wish they I've would never stay. actually seen if yeah. I've never seen it. You know, listed anywhere who the call came from. Maybe they've kept yeah. it quiet for whatever reason. Or if it was just like a miscellaneous number, mm-hmm. but like it'd be nice if they clarified. Yeah. He woke up for work at 6.30 that morning and Snea was still not home and he left for work. So at 8.46 on September 11, the American Airlines Flight 11 was flown into the World Trade Center and the chaos and carnage of 9-11 ensued. Ron found out about the attacks shortly after they happened and he was horrified to know that the plane had struck the North Tower, which was two blocks from their apartment. He said in the media he repeatedly called Sneha, but she never answered. And when he finally got in contact with the family, they told him they had no idea where she was. I know at the time they were saying things like the phone lines were so overloaded and, you know, you couldn't make a phone call and all that. So it would it sounds like it would yeah. have been super chaotic for him trying to find her. Ron managed to get a ride with an ambulance to their apartment, but it took him over six hours to get there. When he got there, he discovered the electricity was out and that he couldn't get in because of the automatic locks. He was running around yelling Snea's name and someone came and asked him what was wrong. So I'm assuming this was someone in the building. He asked him to go and knock on his apartment door, but there was no answer. Ron left to spend the night at a friend's house because he couldn't get into his own apartment. He returned the next day, September 12, and he finally managed to get inside. When he opened the apartment door, he was met with an eerie sight. Grey soot and debris from the Twin Towers fell in through an open window and coated every surface. The only footprints visible were those made by the cats. There was no sign of Sneher. He was sure that she'd never made it home and he reported his wife missing. When police started their investigation, they realised that none of the clothing or bags from Century 21 were never found in the apartment, which indicated that Sneher never made it home on September 10. Um, I'm guessing that the CT, they had CCTV in their building because there were some reports that a woman who looked like Snare entered the lobby at around 8.43 on September 11 and waited a few minutes for the elevator. So I'm assuming that in that time, you know, the three minutes, the plane hit the tower, so she turned and left. The woman had a similar build and a haircut to Snare and was wearing a dress which looked like the one that Snare had on at Century 21 the night before. Ron theorised that Snea may have heard the commotion while waiting for the elevator and left to see what was going on. And he said because she was a doctor, she wouldn't have hesitated to run in and attempt to help anyone who had been injured. But police have never been able to confirm if it was her in the footage. There was sun streaming into the lobby and it washed out the video, which made it impossible to see anything other than the woman's silhouette. The woman was also not carrying any shopping bags, which may indicate that it was not Snayher, but maybe if she was staying somewhere, you know, maybe she left the bags there the night before. Mm-hmm. So because of obviously the media was very focused on the events of 9-11, Ron and Snayher's family found it hard to get any media attention for her case. In, a, in an attempt to get some coverage, Snayher's brother told the media that she was last seen running into the Trade Centre to offer assistance. His name's John, and he said, I, I was on the phone with her, and she told me she couldn't leave because people were hurt. She said, I have to help this person, and that's the last thing I heard from her. But that is what he told reporters, and the whole story was a lie. He just said it to kind of try and get some coverage for her case. It's smart of him. Yeah, very smart. Um, so her family posted missing persons flyers around the city, but there was hundreds of people doing the same thing at the time. They seem to assume that, police seem to assume that she probably died in the 9-11 attacks and didn't really conduct much of a search for her. So Ron hired a PI, Ken Gallant, who's a former FBI agent. He first considered the possibility that Snea had used the um, attacks as an attempt to run away from her life and start a new life. There were rumours that she'd been conducting affairs with women and that she also had substance abuse issues. 
However, her hard drive, a search of her hard drive revealed no evidence of any plans or contacts, and she'd left her glasses, passport, driver's license, and credit card behind. She'd ha- used her husband's Amex to make the Century 21 purchases, and that was the only card that was missing. Ron kept the account open in case any leads developed from attempts to use it, but none ever did. So when you know there was no trace of Snea, the police did eventually begin to investigate. And I always wondered why she wasn't planning to work the week of her disappearance, but this is why. Earlier in 2001, Cabrini Medical Centre did not renew her contract, citing repeated tardiness and alcohol-related issues. They effectively fired her. After she got fired, she went out on, on a night out to bars with some former colleagues, and that ended up to her spending the night in jail. She complained to police that a fellow intern groped her and the prosecutor who invested the case dropped the sexual abuse charge and instead charged Snayer with a third degree falsely reporting an incident, which is a misdemeanor under New York law. He offered to drop the charge if she recanted, but she refused and was held overnight. After her dismissal from Cabrini, she began spending nights out at gay and lesbian bars. According to the police, she would sometimes live with women she met at the bars. And then the police also said, which is weird to me, that Snea's brother discovered her and his then-girlfriend having sex, with which her brother absolutely disputed. That's so weird. <laughs> she, why are the police even telling everyone this? <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't care. Uh, got another intern at St. Vincent's, internship, sorry, at St. Vincent's Medical Centre on Staten Island, but she'd run into similar problems there. She'd already been suspended for missing a meeting with a substance abuse counsellor. On the morning of September 10th, so this was the last day she was seen, she'd been formally arraigned on the criminal charge and pled not guilty. The police report says that she and Ron fought loudly at the courthouse about her problems and nights out, which ended with her walking away and him leaving to, home, to go home alone and get ready for work. So kind of during this investigation, Snea's name was added at one point to the list of 9-11 victims and her family attended some memorials. And her family also dispute a lot of what is in the police report. They say that she wasn't fired from Cabrini because of her alcoholism, but because she was a whistleblower. So basically that she kind of was blowing the lid on all this sexual abuse that was happening in the workplace. Ron said that she went to the lesbian bars because she didn't want a repeat of the sexual abuse she had encountered with her co-workers. She never had sex with women she went home with, he said. They would often merely listen to music, sleep or paint. Mm. One time, in fact, she came home covered in paint after going home with an artist. And he also thought that her drinking was a temporary phase to ease her depression after she got fired and that, you know, once her life was back on track, she would stop drinking. Snea's brother also says the report of him catching her with his girlfriend is completely false and he never even spoke with the detective who wrote it. Ron says that they never fought outside the courthouse and he believes the police made this information up to deflect any attention about their investigative failings in the case. Which, I don't know, I feel like... There's probably some bit of truth to a lot of it. There's, why would they just make all this up? I feel like her, I don't know if it's like her family and husband are just like oblivious or they care a lot about their image and her image yeah. still that they're just trying to like cover up a lot of things or I don't know. It's just. It seems weird that there's just two completely opposite sides. I feel like the truth must be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. The police investigation into her disappearance concluded around 2003 and then Ron filed a court petition in New York County Surrogates Court, which handles probate matters, to have his wife declared officially as a victim of the 9-11 attacks. 
It says New York state law requires clear and convincing evidence of a possible victim's exposure to any lethal peril in order for any presumption of death and subsequent legal provisions, including benefits from the federal September 11 Victims Compensation Fund to apply. Ron's argument was that because she was a doctor, she would have rushed to the World Trade Center to help. Her mother also spoke about the online chat that said she was going to visit Windows on the World and possibly do some shopping in the World Trade Center mall. Ellen Winner was appointed guardian ad litem for Snayher and introduced the NYPD report and argued there was no clear evidence that she was at or near the World Trade Center during the attacks. On June 29, 2006, Judge Renee Roth ruled that it could not be established that Snayer died on September 11 and instead set the legal date of her death at September 10, 2004, three years after she was reported missing, which is the New York state law. After the police uncovered the evidence about her alcoholism and the sexual abuse, the city medical examiner removed Snayer from the list of 9-11 victims in 2004. This is like a long, drawn-out legal process for her family. They decided to appeal that, and on January 31, 2008, a five-judge panel reversed Judge Roth's decision, and they found that the simplest explanation was probably the most likely, that Snayer had actually died at the World Trade Center. She was officially declared the 2,751st victim of the Twin Towers collapse. Despite this, the 9-11 Victims Fund closed in 2003, and Ron and Snayer's family will not receive any compensation. If she had have been declared a victim earlier, Ron may have received between three to four million dollars. Her name has been added to all official lists of victims of the tragedy, and her family took an urn full of debris from the site and buried it in memory of her. No physical remains have been found for over one thousand victims of the attacks. Her family hopes that the jewelry she wore, which included diamonds, could have easily withstood the temperatures, and that eventually, because I know they're still, you know going through the matching process, eventually that they might have some proof that she died there. At the National September 11 Memorial, Snea Ann Phillip is memorialised at the South Pool on panel S66. So obviously as of May 2021, she's still missing. Um, and I think the one thing is like, so there's quite a few theories about what happened to her. So did she see the attacks happening and used that as an excuse to run away and start a new life, you know, away from her troubles? Um, there was a 2012 post-secret postcard that was sent in, and I know that a lot of people theorise that this was sent by Snea. It's the twi- uh, kind of like a drawing of the Twin Towers, and it says, everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. And for people who don't know what post-secret is, it was a thing where people would send in anonymous postcards with like confessions to an address, and then they'd get published online, and then eventually they're published in books. So it's basically an anonymous confession that says, like Olivia just said, everyone who knew yeah. me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. The people writing and, you know, confess to affairs and confess to, you know, whatever terrible things they've done. But, mm-hmm. yeah, so this is an interesting one, and I know that a lot of people have always thought that maybe it came from Snail. I'd love to know more. Like I know it's anonymous, but I'd love to know where the, where the stamp was and all that, you know. But then it's also like someone could have just made it up. Yeah, exactly. Like I could have written in, I murdered someone and sent post-secret, like. That's, I what, feel that's like, annoying about it. <laughs> it's interesting, but yeah, not necessarily true, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like that as a theory is probably like it could have happened. But then I, I guess the thing is the tw- Twin Tower attacks were so unexpected for her to yeah. just think, okay, this is my chance. I don't know if that would be the first thing you'd think when you were right there, if she was right there, you know, seeing it happen. Yeah, I don't. It's always fun. Not like fun, but 
I guess, fun to think of like, oh, this person, like they went off and like start a new life. But I think it's a lot harder than people would think, especially to go undetected. Like it's one thing if police tracked her down and she was like, I'm starting a new life. I don't want to talk to my family ever again, like whatever. But to go like completely undetected, like no money, no big accounts. Just to do that, no, what, I think it would, planning. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. I think it would require a lot of planning to just and know, never run mind away from your life. Seeing what was happening in front of you. And I think it'd be impossible to use the World Trade Center's falling as like a light bulb moment to be like, this is my time. I'm going to start a new life. Fuck this place. Because imagine even, even trying to get out of the city during 9 11. Like it's, it's not like you could just run away and get on a train and go straight away. Like no, everything was like shut even, down. And like I live in New York, like I'm only like an hour away from the city. And even like here, like not comparing it at all, but even just where I live, I remember getting picked up from school as a kid. Like it was just like fucking chaos everywhere because no one knew what was going to happen. No one knew if we were all safe. Like the roads everywhere were gridlocked. So I couldn't imagine actually living in the fucking city while this is happening. Like it affected like a huge area, especially if they only lived within, if that was her in the lobby and they only lived like two blocks away, that whole area got fucked up. So if she, like, was out there, there's no way she's thinking, like, this is my time to get out of here. Like, she's probably just thinking how she's going to f- survive and how scary it is. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just, that's it. Like, th- that, this theory makes it seem more mysterious, but I think it's probably the most unlikely. Yeah, like, it's the fun theory. Yeah. I think she probably most likely was in the area at the time and died from the attack, if that was yeah. her in the lobby. But if that wasn't her in the lobby... I feel like she probably, maybe something happened on September 10th. Like, she never came home. She went out. And even, I know, like, I want to say about the sexual abuse allegations, whether it's true or not, like, say it's not true and she made it up. I think that would show that her mental health was, like, in a decline. Or it was true and then she was traumatized from it, you know, like, the place didn't believe her. They're clearly calling her a liar. They kind of turned it around on her. If it was true, that's something really traumatizing to happen to you. And again, more reason to spiral. So it seemed like for some reason she was having some sort of spiral in her life. I don't think that she was fired from her job for being a whistleblower like her family thinks no, because then she got another job and was getting in trouble for the same thing. So either she was drinking because of the trauma of a possible sexual assault or for other reasons and that was all part of it. So who knows what she was doing on the night of the 10th? And if she was with people, why have those people never come forward? Like, why was no yeah. one like, I was with her that night? The one thing that, like, the one kind of mystery about that, you know, if she did die in the 9-11 attacks and that was her in the lobby, where is all the stuff? Like, maybe she did have a secret partner, you know, and maybe that's why she was buying things to keep at that house. But um, it's just, yeah, weird that they've never come forward. Like, I get why they wouldn't come forward if it was scandalous or maybe, you know, they were also married yeah. or something like that, you know, something along those lines. But it's just, where's the stuff? <laughs> yeah, I was reading comments on Reddit on this and someone just brought up the fact of, like, it would be so easy to cover up a murder in, like, the days, the day yes. right before and, like, the days after 9-11. Like, it'd be so in that area. Like, you could just murder someone and just be like, well, it was 9-11. They must have been in the towers. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like that um, case. I feel like I bring this one up all the time, and I never remember her name. Where uh, I don't remember the state. The hurricane happened, and, like, the husband actually oh, murdered yes. her. But he tried to be like, she went missing in the hurricane. Was it, yeah. Je- uh, was it Crystal? Yeah. 
Yes, Crystal McDowell, I'm sure it was. Yeah, that was it. it But yeah, her husband, you know, there's a big hurricane coming and he used it as an opportunity to be like, well, I murdered my wife, but yeah, she must there's have been a hurricane. hurricane. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was Crystal McDowell. Um, and so the third kind of theory, so you've got the first theory, theory is that she ran away. The second one is that she died in the attacks. And the third one is that maybe there was some type of foul play that, again, maybe was covered up by 9-11 or, you know, was Ron pissed that she was having affairs? Was someone pissed that she was whistleblowing? Um, did she have an affair with someone and make their partner angry? Like, I guess there's a whole bunch of different reasons that someone might have been angry enough to murder her. But I feel like that's, you know, the almost as least, you know, up there for me as the her running away one. Yeah. I mean, my first thought would be she died from the attacks. Second yeah. would be she died doing or killed herself on whatever happened on the 10th. Yeah. And yeah. then I... I'd still believe probably any other thing that could happen before I believe she left and started a new life. I don't know. It'd be a great story if she did, but imagine I, I think it's you know how we you know how we say like something happens every time we're done recording. We're gonna like <laughs> stop recording and it'll be like Sneha comes forward after years. <laughs> I hope she sends me an email. <laughs> hope for her family she's alive anyway, but I think it's probably very unlikely. Yeah, I don't think so. So I know that you found some interesting kind of facts about the World Trade Center, which relates to this and the theories about what happened to her. So it took 3.1 million hours of labor to clean up 1.8 million tons of debris at the site. Uh, The World Trade Center was formerly referred to as Ground Zero or the Pile. And it's an so the area is 14.6 acres or 5.9 hectares, which is so it's enormous. It's an area in lower Manhattan in New York City. The dust and debris reached as far as the Empire State Building, which is three miles away. The World Trade Center was part of a complex of seven buildings, all of which were destroyed and approximately 3,000 people died. As of July 2020, only 60% have been positively identified, according to the Medical Examiner's Office. Yeah, so I just put down like those notes because to me it kind of proves the point that if she was really anywhere in that area or if she went to like that restaurant she went to or anywhere in that complex like all those buildings collapsed and i think the people who were in those buildings a lot of them were like obliterated there's literally nothing much left yeah. to find beside, besides things like the you know the jewelry that Engagement her family rings and stuff. yeah anything kind of metal and i know I, like i find it fascinating to look at what they've found there's like an i think there's a 9-11 artifacts kind of museum somewhere isn't there yeah, I mean, went. there's a bunch of different ones. I, I've gone to one. It's so scary to see how big the fucking pieces of metal mm. are from the building that are warped by the heat and, like, how hot it must have been. And then, like, the one I went to, it had, I think it was in Albany. They had a bunch of the missing missing posters set up, kind of like how it was then, just, like, all just hung up everywhere. And it's so, it's, like, terrifying to think of this. Like, I was alive when it happened, obviously, and in new york but i was only in fourth grade but just seeing like all the missing posters and being like wow all these people all their families and even more than that you could see in these missing posters it was just such like a hectic time so i mean it's easy to see how sneha got lost in the mix yeah caught up so anyway that's a got some interesting theories i guess about what could have happened to her yeah hopefully one day they find that piece of jewelry Mm, something, anything, that would be a good, you know, good end to the story. Mm, I guess that, that's that. Been a long one, really. 
I know. <laughs> yeah, it's because there's so many fucking updates. <laughs> so that's all we got for weird disappearances that we came up with for this episode. I'm sure we could find more if you guys are into that. Let us know. Maybe we'll, we'll do another episode on it. Um, as always, leave us a good review. Mm-hmm. Go to our website. Go to the forum. We'll have a blog up about this at truecrimesocietyblog.com so you can see any photos, you can see the post secret, you can see the videos, all that stuff. Definitely go back and listen to our podcast on Chad and Lori so you get caught up on that because clearly that case is popping this month. Yeah, Yeah. there's a lot happening. I'm sure there'll be more happening. So you want to be in the know. So go either read the blog, listen to the podcast. Um, Anything else? I think so. I think that's it. We'll be back next week with whatever happens as soon as we finish recording. <laughs> yeah, we should we should do a quick Google and see if anything's happening. But <laughs> see you guys next week. Yeah. <laughs>